The following is a sermon from the Edgington Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Taylor Ridge, Illinois. So let me uh, invite you to open your copy of the scriptures, the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation. We are in this summer uh, transitioning and doing a topical series called Hard Questions. It's been a couple of weeks since we've addressed one, but our question this morning is, why is Revelation in our Bible? Uh, so a couple of things to note as you're opening your Bible there by way of introduction. Um, that uh, w- one of the most common things that you'll hear is people call the book of Revelation the book of Revelations. Just a, kind of a pastoral word that there's no S at the end of Revelation. It's the book of Revelation. Just encourage you about that. Uh, I'm very tempted to answer the question, why is the book of Revelation in our Bible, by saying, because it's God's Word, and then close the Bible and we'll move on uh, with the service. But that, that's not uh, good enough in and of itself, although it is very true. The book of Revelation is in the Bible because it is included in the canon of Scripture as recognized, as divinely inspired and inerrant for the good of the church, God's Word to His church. Still, in this hard question series, we've been uh, trying to take individual questions from at least two different perspectives, and sometimes the question leans one way or the other depending on the subject matter. There are some questions that we're asking because they are hard questions that people who that do not share our faith commitments would ask of the Christian faith from outside Christian faith commitments. So they would, we would say, non-Christians asking difficult questions of the Christian faith. But there are also questions that we're wanting to unpack in this series that Christian believers would ask about their own faith. And I am taking this question more from the perspective today of Christian believers asking of our own faith, why is the book of Revelation in our Bible? Why, as a Christian believer, Should I read and approach the book of Revelation as divine scripture? So that's the perspective from which we are asking the question today. So before we look at this text, let me just kind of uh, onboard to you the book of Revelation generally as we approach it. Because the reason why I am addressing this question is actually because it was suggested to me by a few different people. And that's because the book of Revelation, the 66th book of the canon of our scripture is for so many people shrouded in mystery that makes it seem unapproachable. For many people, the book of Revelation is filled with so much symbolism and prophetic imagery that it's hard to know what it's talking about, and we often encounter a a real difficult kind of subjective versus objective interpretive methods where people say things like, well, when I read that, to me it means this. And we hear different people say different things about what that means. And we're frustrated because we want to know, well, well, what does it actually mean objectively? I don't want to know what it means to you. I want to know what it means in the context of God's Word. And we get frustrated by saying, does this book actually have any explicit meaning that we can know for sure? What does it mean? And also, as we kind of approach by way of onboarding the book of Revelation, we oftentimes find people using the book of Revelation to promote fear or intimidation or uncertainty or a disquieted Christian conscience that makes you doubt your faith commitments 
rather than being bolstered and assured in them. Oftentimes, it is the book of Revelation that is used, unfortunately, something as a club to beat people with. Or perhaps the book of Revelation is oftentimes used for endless speculative hobby horsing about eschatological end times topics that again promote fear. And there are some people who all they want to do and all they want to talk about is the prophetic aspects of the book of Revelation leading to endless hobby horsing and all people want to talk about is the book of Revelation. For these and likely for many more reasons that perhaps you could add to, we are hesitant to approach this 66th book of the canon of God's word. And my hope today is to uh, both simultaneously uh, to, to demystify the approaches to the book of Revelation by explaining how the book is structured, but also to give confidence and peace and hope to us as Christian believers to do away with these notions of fears and uncertainties and disquieted consciences and instead lead to blessing and hope and courage and conviction and faith and trust in the God who gives the book of Revelation. So, for those reasons, we are approaching this question, why is the book of Revelation in the Bible? If you've got your Bible open in Revelation 19, let's pray and ask God's blessing upon the Scriptures. Oh, great God, we turn now to your Word, believing that here you speak to us the words of life. We are a people that are needy of truth and needy of direction and encouragement. And so, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, speak your Word to us. Speak it not only to our ears as we hear it, but speak it to our souls and our hearts as we need to be convicted to rest upon the truth of your word. And so, Lord, as the Apostle John was given this revelation, so too might we receive that same spirit to apply to our hearts the truth of your word. Bless now the reading and preaching of the scriptures, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. And now here, Revelation 19 we we'll to be reading uh, through the first 10 verses of Revelation 19 under the banner, Rejoicing in Heaven. Hear now the Word of God. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for His judgments are true and just, for He has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cry out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen! Hallelujah! And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of many peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt, and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, 
These are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God abides forever. So keep your Bible open there in Revelation 19. Uh, and actually... Uh, if you want to keep a finger in Revelation 19, I, I do intend to do a sweeping survey of the entire book. So if you want to keep a pencil or a pen there in chapter 19 and go back to chapter 1, uh, we'll, be, we'll be seeing a sweeping survey of the book. Why is the book of Revelation in our Bible? We've already spoken of kind of the onboarding approaches and the various uncertainties and mystified sense in which people don't want to approach the book of Revelation. Nevertheless, it's here. It stands in the witness of God's Word as God's Word. So we must indeed approach it. What is the book of Revelation all about? Well, in the first century, the early church, uh, the early Christian church was a small and deeply persecuted bunch by the mighty arm of the strong Roman Empire. The church is born uh, really from eternity, but comes into being there in the context of the first century as a small persecuted minority. To the appearance of the Christian believers in the first century, the, the mission, the task, the commission to take the gospel to the end of the earth seemed to be a hopeless task because the Roman Empire already occupied seemingly the ends of the known earth and to supplant the worship of Caesar with the worship of Jesus Christ was in itself seemingly an impossible task. And yet, that is exactly what the church was commissioned to do. Take this gospel of Jesus and take it everywhere so that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and to a culture that confessed Caesar is Lord, that mission was a tall task. So the book of Revelation is written fundamentally to encourage the church of Jesus Christ to continue in her mission to take that gospel of Jesus to the ends of the earth. The revelation of John is given to him to encourage the church in their mission. But we acknowledge that it is a different type of literature. The book of Revelation is, in the New Testament, apocalyptic literature. And we're not used to apocalyptic literature in the New Testament because apocalyptic literature tends to be more in the Old Testament, like the book of Daniel, like the book of Ezekiel, those prophetic texts that speak to foretelling with images, symbolism, numbers, and colors, and shapes to talk about what God will do yet in the future. And the book of Revelation is unique in the New Testament as being an apocalyptic text of the New Testament. Now, we know it's apocalyptic because even in chapter 1, verse 1, 1 verse 1, John says, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. And that word revelation is the Greek word apocalypto, apocalypsis. It means unveiling. The very word revelation means to pull back the curtain of what will be to give God's people uh, appearing insight into the mysteries which are yet future, to give confidence and assurance as the church continues on in its mission. 
God wants the church to know through the unveiling revelation of Jesus Christ in language and forms that dazzle and shock the good news that Jesus ultimately wins. That's the point of the book of Revelation. Jesus wins. And it's helpful to us because what the Gospels narrate in written form, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they tell the story in spoken written form. The book of Revelation is like the, the 3D color version of the story. So for example, Jesus said in Matthew 16, verse 18, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And the book of Revelation is the amplified exclamatory version of that statement. So if the words, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, are like a photograph, a picture, the book of Revelation is the movie that tells the unveiling reality of the gates of hell not prevailing against the church. Can the book of Revelation be understood? Yes, of course it can be understood. If anybody says to you, we can't know what it means, we can never know, we're just filled with uncertainty, uh, you need to not pay attention to that person. Because God did not give his word to his people to confuse them or lead them to uncertainty. God gave his word to his people to fill them with courage and hope in the face of all that they are uh, looking at. So, can it be understood? Yes, of course. But let's acknowledge, and let me just kind of admit to you that this is somewhat teaching, somewhat preaching here, that there are four basic schools of interpretive approach to the book of Revelation, meaning somebody will approach the book of Revelation with one of these four basic commitments about how to read it. So these four different approaches, and the first one is called the futurist approach to the book of Revelation. The futurist approach to the book of Revelation, you might guess, reads the book of Revelation as describing events that are only future, only still yet to come. So they read, especially chapters 4 through 22, as only future and not present or past in any sense whatsoever. That's the futurist approach reading of the book of Revelation. Now, secondly, what's called the preterist reading of the Revelation, and preterist is from a Latin word meaning past, is the exact opposite of the futurist approach. Preterism says everything in the book of Revelation has already happened, except for the last two chapters. Everything has already happened except the last two chapters. They would read events, especially in the first century, for example, the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, as the fulfillment of everything that the book of Revelation prophesies. So you have futurist, only future, preterist, only past, and then the third one is what's called historicist. And if you are familiar with what we could say strange or really quite goofy interpretations of the book of Revelation, it's likely coming from the historicist school of interpretation. The historicist school of interpretation of the book of Revelation looks for the visionary symbolization of the sequence of events as having already taken place in the unfolding of history. So for example, if you are a historicist interpreter of the book of Revelation, you will find Adolf Hitler in the book of Revelation. You will find Joseph Stalin. You will find Vladimir Putin as the fulfillment of individual events or occurrences. You will see plagues of locusts and thinks that refers to the tanks of the Third Reich. 
this school of interpretation, the historic school of interpretation, is actually the most prominent school in American evangelicalism, which is why people are most confused by the book of Revelation, because it takes a book that's supposed to encourage and reads it against the newspapers and is constantly saying, oh, I see the fulfillment here and I see it there. And did you see the news article? And did you see the headline? Did you see this? Did you see that? It's the unfolding of the book of Revelation. That is a historicist sequence. Futurist, preterist, historicist, and finally what's called the idealist interpretive school of the book of Revelation and cards on the table. This is your pastor's view of the book of Revelation and this is the Reformed tradition's broadly view of the book of Revelation. The idealist school sees the prophetic symbolism of the book of Revelation as describing both the present reality of the church's existence and the future existence of the church as a symbolic depiction, emblematic of the present reality, of the struggle between light and dark and good and evil, and the advancement of the church in the midst of Jesus' present reigning over all things and the church's advancement of his kingdom. So, you either got only future, only past, historical chronological sequence, or idealist interpretations that say it is representative of the entire age between Jesus' first and second coming. Now, some of you through those four interpretive schools are already saying, well, no wonder why people are confused about all of these things. But I told you cards on the table. I teach the book of Revelation from an idealistic perspective, namely that Jesus wins. In one sense, he has already won, and he is yet going to win in fullness one day. But we fundamentally as the church live in victory. So, because the book of Revelation is a pocket liter literature, not everything is immediately apparent. And that's why there's oftentimes a danger of losing the forest for the trees, which is why we want to keep our eyes out for the big picture, which is this. Again, Jesus wins. Jesus brings to full culmination the kingdom that he has inaugurated by his resurrection is the kingdom that he will consummate in the day of his glorious appearing when all things are brought into one under the banner of Jesus Christ and all evil is cast out and dispelled and cast into judgment forever. And that's the story of the book of Revelation. So, if you thought we were uh, getting technical so far, let's, let's, let's do a sweeping survey because we need to learn as Christian believers how to read this admittedly very unique book. As New Testament apocalyptic literature, the book of Revelation is telling the exact same story seven different ways. So the way the book of Revelation is structured is what we call progressive parallelism. And what progressive parallelism means is that the book of Revelation, through various sequences and sections of chapters will tell you the same story, but as it tells the story again and again, will reveal more and more information about the future, thus spending more time describing the future and less time talking about the past. And you could think about it like this. If the book of Revelation is a structure, it's like a NASCAR track, okay? And the book of Revelation, through a sequence of chapters, takes a lap. But every successive lap, the track gets smaller. 
so that as you take more and more laps, the details get finer and finer tuned to the main point of what is yet to come. But the first several laps are wide and sweeping and catch details that are seemingly uh, strange or uncertain, but are intended to point you to the big picture as you move through progressive parallel cycles of closer definement of future realities. So let me show it to you. In the first three chapters, John is encouraged to see the risen, glorified Christ walking amidst the churches. And the letters to the churches in the first three chapters are given to real historical churches, but have contemporary relevance to all the church in every age. So, even though you can visit historical sites where the church at Ephesus, Laodicea, Philadelphia, etc. were, those churches aren't present anymore. Nevertheless, the issues that Jesus was speaking to those churches are still immediately relevant to the church in every age. So, chapters 1 to 3 have this application for the entire age. Then, when you move into chapters 4, 5, 6, and 7, John is caught up into heaven and sees God sitting on the throne with a lamb who was slain, taking a scroll, which is uh, the book of life, and unrolling it. The victorious lamb has power to open the seals, and so he does. And there is the depiction of the resurrected, glorious, uh, victorious Jesus. And then there is a judgment narrative. At chapter 6, verses 15 to 17, there is a description of judgment. So, Revelation 6, at verse 15 says, Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? This is the exalted Christ standing over all things with authority to unveil the scroll and bring to consummation his kingdom. So, chapters 4, 5, 6, and 7 tell the whole story. Christ is exalted. He returns in victory to mete out judgment. And so he is worshipped. So, what then happens is you press repeat. You take another lap around the track, and chapters 8, 9, 10, and 11 tell the same story of Christ in exaltation, bringing victory and judgment to reign over all things, but it uses different pictures and different symbols to tell the same story. Seven trumpets, the church is avenged and protected, and there is a victory. The judgment there is in chapter 11, verse 18. Chapter 11, verse 18 says, The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for the rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumbles, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. So, another section, the same story. There is always a judgment narrative at the end of the sequence telling the story because that's how the story goes. Christ is exalted and then he comes in judgment. So at the end of every sequence is a judgment narrative. But there's not judgment after judgment after judgment after judgment. It's the same judgment as you come around the track again, but it gets narrow every time. So chapters 12 through 14 the picture is a woman giving birth to a son while a dragon waits to devour him as the son is born, which is a reference to the birth of Christ and the great serpent trying to strike down the Christ child from being born. 
And the rest describes the continual opposition of the dragon to the church with the judgment scene in chapter 14, verses 14 to 15. And then in chapters 15 to 16, it's seven bowls with the final judgment scene at the end of chapter 16. And then in chapters 17 through 19, it's the fall of Babylon, the beast of the earth, the beast of the sea, with the final judgment coming at the end of chapter 19. So, whether you see bowls or trumpets or dragons or women or children, it's the same story of Christ in his victory bringing judgment ultimately. So, all that to say, when we come to chapter 19, you say that was all introduction, my goodness. When we come to chapter 19, chapter 19 very well and helpfully encapsulates how the book of Revelation tells this story in all its various ways because chapter 19 is the final word of the song of salvation and it is set against the backdrop of the great catastrophe of chapter 18 where Babylon is fallen. So at the beginning of chapter 19 when John says, after this, the this is the destruction, the fall of Babylon, the catastrophic downfall and judgment of the earthly city of Babylon, which Babylon is representative of the world and its systems, the devil and his reign, all evil and all unrighteousness is represented by the earthly city Babylon. And as you read through the fall of Babylon, it takes a strong stomach to stay on the scene while the seals are broken and the trumpets are blown and the bowls are poured out, but it is representative of evil once and for all being put out. Wickedness being destroyed, sin and death and the curse. It finally happens. So let me just say very quickly, if you are a person who has at some point or another or perhaps many instances been so unnerved in your gut when you look at the world and say, this is wrong. This is wicked. This is evil. If you are someone that knows what it is like to look at the world and unrighteousness and injustice and say, this is so wrong, then you will agree with the saints in Revelation 6 who say, how long, O Lord, how long will you suffer this evil? How long will you suffer this unrighteousness? How long will you let Satan continue to have his way in the kingdoms of this world? When will you bring it all to an end? If you've ever longed for that, John reports, it's coming. There is an actual day of actual judgment when actual evil will be put out actually. And you must believe that. When wickedness is destroyed and righteousness is assured and God will vindicate His purposes in the world, there is a catastrophic fall of a catastrophic judgment to reveal the glory of God's salvation. And the book of Revelation says it's all real. God's judgment is real. Jesus' kingdom is real. God's victory in Christ is real and your salvation in Christ is real. So attention then now moves to this song of salvation in chapter 19 where you find the original Hallelujah Chorus. So uh, Joseph Handel borrowed it from Revelation 19. And you know the word Hallelujah only actually appears four times in the New Testament. And every time it's here. Verse 1, verse 6, verse 12. 
And when, uh, sorry, verse 1, 3, 4, and 6 is the hallelujahs of chapter 19. And what John is doing here as he is taken up by the Spirit to see these heavenly images is that he is given these various pictures. And it's almost indescribable. You notice how John has to search for words to describe what he sees. And even when he finds them, he can only express them by way of metaphor. Notice how he says, I saw what seemed to be in verse 1. It seemed to be this, or it was like this in verse 6. I saw what seemed to be in verse 12, because there is no perfect language to adequately describe the fullness and glory of what John sees by spiritual revelation, as he sees the plot and purpose of all redemptive history coming to its pinnacle. Because what you see in chapter 19 is the point of the entire Bible. Namely, that God will overtake the catastrophic result of sin and he will put it away fully and finally to rescue his creation, recover the world, and extend his dominion over all things. And notice how the song builds moving towards the throne in verses 1 to 3. There is a great multitude in heaven that are crying out. Your loved ones and mine, the saints around the throne, crying out in praise to God, a great multitude in heaven crying out. And then in verse 4, it's the 24 elders, which are symbolic of the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles, the 24 elders of the church in both testamental ages of the history of redemption gathered around the throne, and the four living creatures, which are symbolic of the four gospel writers, the angel, the ox, uh, the ram and the man. So these four gospel writers, the four living creatures, and then in verse 5, the voice from the throne. Verse 5, and the voice from the throne came a voice saying, it's the actual, the opposite direction of what you see in chapter 5, but in chapter 5 in Revelation, it moves from the throne to the elders and the four living creatures and then the multitudes, but in chapter 19, it comes back the other way. It's the great multitudes and the 24 elders and the four living creatures and then the throne, such to say that the book of Revelation is saying that in heaven there is the infinite reverberation of divine worship and praise as the call goes out and worship comes the response, which, by the way, is why we do what we do here. The call goes out, worship our God, the response is received, worship our King. Worship our God, worship our King. This infinite reverberation of divine praise. Endless songs of worship and adoration of the living God. And then you see, in verse 6 and following this marriage supper, John says, I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude again. The roar of many waters rejoicing at this occasion. Then comes the hallelujahs again. Let us rejoice and exalt and give Him glory. Why? Verse 7, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. The book of Revelation concludes with this picture of a wedding feast. Because the great story of salvation, the great story, the great drama of God's salvation is the story of a bridegroom and a bride. So the Bible says, this is a betrothal and wedding scene. And listen, engagements, uh, traditions and cultures and weddings differ from culture to culture, but the picture that John is giving here is that of a Hebrew or Jewish 
betrothal ceremony, which after a given period of time of betrothal comes the wedding ceremony. Now you might say that sounds very much like engagement and marriage, but there's a difference because the betrothal rite binds the bride and bridegroom in a legally recognized relationship of being promised to each other, which is, by the way, why Joseph considered divorcing Mary when he heard that she was pregnant, even though they were not yet married yet. They were betrothed because it was a legally binding uh, reality that says we will be married, which is similar again to engagement. But this metaphor of being betrothed to the Lord, of being promised to the Lord, is all throughout the scriptures. Like Isaiah 54, for your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is your name. Isaiah 62, as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. In Matthew 22, Jesus compares the kingdom of God to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And the New Testament in Ephesians 5 tells the story of the church as the bride of Jesus Christ. The bridegroom who gives his life for his bride. This all corresponds in the book of Revelation. And this is why this is so important. In the Hebrew culture, there was oftentimes a waiting period between the betrothal and the wedding while the bride and bridegroom lived separately. And during the betrothal period, a dowry was arranged, a payment price. When the sum was paid, and only after the sum was paid, then the actual wedding followed, and on the day of the wedding, the bridegroom would process through the community to go to where the bride lived, and then take the bride home back to his home, which would become their married home together. And then a wedding feast was held to celebrate. Do you see the picture? The bride is the church. She is chosen from all eternity. And all throughout the Old Testament, the wedding is announced. That's what the Old Testament prophets are doing. The announcement of a wedding and then the Son of God comes, assuming our flesh and blood, and with a promise, a betrothal is made. And with that same flesh and blood, the dowry is paid, his own very life. And then comes the time of waiting. The promise has been made, the price has been paid, but the church as the bride is still waiting the day of the wedding feast until the time comes when the bridegroom comes from his home to visit his bride where she lives, then to take her back home to where he lives. Do you see the picture? From this perspective, the church is now the bride waiting what seems like only a little while until the bridegroom comes in glorious procession to take his bride to their home together. And the church waits, in verse 8, clothed in white linen, the righteousness of Jesus Christ, waiting for the time when he will come to take his bride home. And then comes the great feast, the great banquet of the marriage supper of the Lamb. And who was invited? Verse 9, the angel said to me, write this down, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. How do you know if you have a seat at the banquet table? How do you know if you're invited to the marriage supper 
of the Lamb. It is those who have responded to the gift of salvation in Jesus Christ, who have been clothed in white garments, who are seated at the table of the Lamb. They have received and rested upon Jesus as He has offered to them in the Gospel because the Bridegroom is their Savior. This is all Christian believers. The wedding feast is for all those who put their trust in Christ. So let me say very explicitly, this is not good news if you have not trusted in Jesus. The wedding feast is only for those who have rested their hope upon Christ alone. And if you have, then you have received the invitation and there is a seat at this banquet feast for you. This is endless good news for those who are in union with Christ. And the Bible says this is where all of history is heading, toward this grand feast. And friends, listen very carefully as a word of conclusion. What you see on this table is intended to be a foretaste of this marriage banquet. And the promises of a living Savior who has given Himself for your sins so that you might be forgiven, clothed in righteousness, and granted a seat at the eternal wedding feast of the Lamb. And in this supper, you have a foretaste of that reality until the day comes when He will come from His home to where His bridegroom, to where His bride is, and there to take her home for all eternity. This is why the book of Revelation is in the Bible, because it tells the whole story. Listen, there is this renewed interest in the Titanic, right? All that submarine stuff. There's this renewed interest in the Titanic. It would not make any sense way back in whatever, 1993 or 97, whenever it was, if someone were to be standing in the line to go see the movie Titanic and saying, I wonder how it ends. Because we know how Titanic ends, right? And it changes the way you know the story. Christian believer, if you know how the story ends, doesn't it change the way you live? Doesn't it change your hope and your confidence and your peace and your joy to know that whatever befalls the church of Jesus Christ, Jesus wins. So you can be blessed to have the book of Revelation for your eternal confidence rather than your fear. Let's pray. Great God, we pray now that you would take your word and seal it to our hearts that we might be a faithful people trusting in you and looking with endless hope to the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. Bless us as we glorify the name of your Son, we ask in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you would like more information about our church or its ministries, please visit edgingtonepc.org. May God bless and keep you.